1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast series here on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking about open access in publishing with our guest, Roz Pine, who is the Global Director of Research and Open Access at Bloomsbury. Welcome to the show, Roz. Hello. Um, thank you so much for having me. I am so glad that you're here. Uh, To start us off, I wonder if you would please tell us about yourself.
1: Sure. So, as you've said, I work on research and open access at Bloomsbury Publishing, um, which is based in um, London and New York, and our academic publishing focuses on the arts, humanities, and social sciences. And one of our priorities within that is to expand our open access book publishing. So I joined Bloomsbury in February of this year to help move us towards that goal. And to give you a bit more about where I am, um, I'm based in Cambridge, UK, um, from a little house um, somewhere near the centre with all the colleges. And we are taping during the pandemic, and so you are working from home at this time? Yes, I'm working from home. I actually haven't made it into our offices yet. So the offices are in central London. But for the entire time that I interviewed for this role um, that I started, um, the UK was in lockdown for quite a long period of that and the offices have been closed. So I've Thus far, I've met one of my new colleagues who also happens to live in Cambridge, but other than that, I have had entirely virtual communications with everyone I now work with, which is just kind of strange, but I think we're all getting used to that at this point. Wow. So if you could tell us a bit about your own
0: educational path.
1: Sure. So, um, yeah, I was definitely at the nerd end. I did love school. I did an English literature degree um, here at Cambridge, in fact. And then I did a master's with a focus on early modern theater. And you know as I said, I really loved I loved school. I suddenly considered going into academia. That's sort of the path not taken for me, but I think I sort of sat there aged sort of twenty two and I worried about career prospects and I worried I wouldn't be good enough. and and I also kind of felt I'd been in education for a really long time and wanted to try my hand at something else to to know what it might be like to do something else. Um, And, and I was pretty sure if I wasn't going to do something in academia, then I wanted to work in the arts and creative industries, which is what ultimately, through a slightly winding path led me to academic publishing, but I certainly didn't get there immediately. And I'm always amazed by these people who know exactly what they want to do and just sort of pursue it relentlessly, because I think I definitely took a few years of sort of wandering to, to find that path. Can you tell us about The Wandering? I think people are really interested in how
0: you get from point A to B. So you graduated, you had your master's, but you didn't
1: immediately go into publishing? No. um, I'd spent a lot of my undergraduate career, perhaps too much of it, um, doing um, extracurricular theatre and also had the opportunities to do some semi-professional theatre. So mostly at university was directing. And then after I I'd graduated, I managed to work in literary departments, so helping to develop new plays. So that's where I started out. And then I sort of realized that there were very few permanent jobs in theater. You're kind of jumping every two months from job to job. And I just thought this this isn't something for me. I'm a person who needs just a little bit more certainty in my life. And it felt like I didn't quite know where I was gonna be in two months' time. I I, where was I going to live? And I sort of sat down and thought, well, maybe publishing would be a good compromise, because it would still enable me to work with new ideas and help communicate them to the world, which is part of what I would so loved about theatre. Um, but it would also enable me to and, and I mean, obviously, I'd done a literature degree. I think books were certainly part of my hinterland. So that was also something which had always been in the background. And academic publishing, of course, appealed because it meant that I could kind of keep that route into to academia and, and all of that sort of really exciting new research that was happening that I wasn't quite going to be a part of, but perhaps could still be Involved with in some way. So that's sort of how I eventually wended my way into publishing. And I guess having some experience in theater and having done lots of temp jobs in offices, all of that sort of added together to enough, enough experience to get me in the door in publishing. So it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a do lots of work experience in publishing and then eventually get accepted, Um, nor was it do a publishing degree. Um, it, was, it was do some other things that are related and eventually try and make your case and, and, and someone, someone saw some potential and, um, and agreed to take me. I mean, I guess I should say there are publishing degrees these days. You can do a, I mean, I think you can do an undergraduate, but it's more common to do masters in publishing and they are taught by some fabulous people and they are increasingly well-respected. And I do sometimes think actually research in publishing might be, you know, at that sort of intersection of kind of text and how you communicate it. It could be really fascinating, but, um, but they're also by no means a prerequisite. And I think we're also all talking a lot in publishing at the moment about how we can, how we can introduce a more diverse workforce. And that means taking down the barriers to entry rather than putting up more in the form of requiring graduate degrees and so on. So I think they can be really interesting, but they're not necessary. That is a very
0: hopeful story of pursuing your passions and it will all come together and
1: make sense. Yeah, or or I retrospectively justified it. Um, But I mean, I'm happy where I've ended up. So it has has a good ending, whichever way.
0: Did you work in publishing pre- prior to getting this job in February, or was
1: this your your entree? Oh, no. So I worked in publishing for, gosh, almost 14 years now. Um, and I started an editorial. And I mean, I think, you know, obviously, I thought I was going to be an editor and work with people on then, you know, launching new academic journals, publishing new books. Um, but so I joined publishing in the late 2000s. And it was that point where where the digital revolution was really starting to pick up pace. And this sounds so kind of outdated at this point. Oh, the digital revolution. But but, I mean, you have to remember that 15 years ago, actually, the print paradigm was so strong. Actually, it's still quite strong in academic publishing, and maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But um, anyway, things were really starting to move to digital publishing. And that was creating all kinds of new opportunities, different ways of doing publishing. And I think I realized I wanted to be a part of figuring out what that future would look like. Um, And of course, open access was one of those things that was made possible. Open access is fundamentally a a digital thing because it's about making the eBooks available. So I think I I moved into a digital role and then that very rapidly became a full-time open access role. And that was eight years ago. um, And I've just kind of, kept going since then. So that
0: leads to my next question, which is your current role at Bloomsbury. Tell us about that. What is what is a day like for you? What is a week like for you? What is your job like if, for people who don't understand what the nuts and bolts are of what you do? <laughs>
1: um, I feel like I'm going to be one of those cliches who says no day is the same, but it really is is true. I, I think one of the things about working in something like open access is You have to work with all the different areas of a publishing department because if you're trying to change how publishing is done, you can't just work with editorial or just work with the technical department. Actually, everyone throughout the whole company has to understand what that change is, why it's important, and also you're having, well, I'm having to work with every department to figure out. So, what does this change mean, um, and then how can we best serve the books that we publish in this new mode of publishing? Um, all of which is a bit abstract. So, to give you some examples of things that I did today, for example, um, I spent some time with the teams who manage all the software that contains our metadata, figuring out how we can better collect metadata about our open access books sounds potentially a bit dry but that means that we can communicate better about them because it means we can send them to third-party sites and improve their discoverability online and open access is all about trying to increase the readership of our books so um so getting all of those technical details um right is important i also spent some time with the people who um develop our online platforms for reading the open access books, thinking about how can we best indicate that our books are open access? How can we best ensure that people know that this book is is free to download? Um, and then meanwhile, in the background, I've been developing some workshops for our editorial teams, thinking about how can we best commission open access books? What might you as an editor need to know in order to be able to talk to your authors about open access? So it's kind of looking at each department in turn and thinking about how does how does open access affect that? And at the moment, I'm very much in the process of, kind of trying to ensure it's all running really smoothly and everyone internally feels really confident um, about open access and what it is and feels like they can talk about it um, so that we can then go out and talk to the world about it.
0: So let's unpack the term open access for listeners and tell them what it means
1: to academia. Sure. And I think one of the problems with open access is that it's so full of of jargon and all these terms. What do they mean? And why does this thing term seem to mean three things at once? But anyway, open access at its heart means the free unrestricted access to scholarly literature. And it's a concept that came about about Two decades ago, and there were three meetings of of great minds um, in um, Budapest and um, Bethesda and Berlin, and people th- thought we have the internet, and the internet makes possible this great good, which is that we could make the scholarly literature free to access, and that would, you know, it would reduce inequities to access, and it would. Essentially set that set that research free. And so anyone could access it. You wouldn't have to be a scholar at a rich institution. Um, and that might help speed up scholarly exchange and it might help um, foster interdisciplinary conversations because you might find something more easily. Um, so it's fundamentally a digital initiative made possible by the advent of the internet. And at its heart, it's about making the ebook or the article free to download. But there are a few different flavors of open access. Um, So at its base, you could make the work free, but then often open access involves some form of reuse. So it might allow you to share the work so you can email it to your colleagues or to a whole association. Um, You could um, repost it somewhere. You could use the work for educational purposes. You could incorporate it into kind of presentations or potentially derivative works. And that, is th- that type of reuse is governed by um, what are called creative commons licenses. These are the sort of industry standard ways of telling people what you can do with an open access book. So essentially it's free plus potentially some reuse um, and the amount of reuse can be kind of regulated according to what the author is comfortable with or um, what they and the publisher together think will best suit their book. I suppose one other thing to say about open access is that it, it's flipping the publishing model on its head because obviously a publisher traditionally for hundreds of years now, publishers have charged readers um, to um, purchase for purchase of a print copy or more recently to access an online edition of something. With open access, you're giving away that content, you're taking down the paywall. So one of the challenges for publishers is to figure out how do you how do you pay for it how do you substitute for the money that you lose because you're not getting it from readers so that's one of the things I also spend some of my time thinking about in a sort of hard business-like way maybe
0: <laughs> well that was one of my questions how do authors get paid for their work and how does the the publishing house sustain itself if there doesn't seem to be a revenue stream
1: so I'm um, it's a little bit misleading to say that yeah I've, I've, Misleading of me to suggest there isn't a revenue stream because all of our open access books continue to be published in print. That's still very much a format that many readers want, and I think there are different benefits to print versus eBooks, and um, maybe we want di- want different formats for different purposes. Um, so we still sell the print editions of our open access books, and we pay royalties on those to our authors. So there's still some some income for us and some remuneration for the author. Um, But of course, print sales can be a little bit lower on account of the fact that the ebook is freely available. So we currently charge a fee, an open access fee, which is usually paid by the author's institution or funder, um, which is substituting for that lost revenue for the book and ensuring that we can make, um, make that mode sustainable. And I will say openly, I do think that that model can be a little bit problematic because obviously then that's putting up a barrier to, well, only those who have access to funds to pay that fee are able to publish open access and benefit from it. So that's definitely something that we need to work out. At the moment, we're not publishing and most publishers are not publishing that many books open access because it's still in the books realm at a fairly early stage. So I think these are important kind of conversations that we need to have over the coming months and years.
0: So proportionately, how much of your press is open
1: access? I'd say it's pretty small at the moment. Um, Probably... Overall, we're looking at 1% to 2% of our scholarly books, but a higher proportion of the, the research-led books, because obviously we also publish textbooks or um, some academic books that are aimed at a more general market. Um, but and I would say that is, that is not uncommon um, for it to be at those sorts of levels. When I was uh,
0: poking around on the website this morning, uh, I noticed that some of them have a little uh, padlock image on them. And when I clicked on that, it it indicated that the university library would need to have a subscription in order for that um, book to be unlocked. Can you talk a bit about what the subscription model is?
1: Well, the subscription model is essentially the traditional model. So if you think about a print um, publication, then an academic library might purchase a print edition, you know, usually in hardback, to put in its library. Once the book has gone online, then the academic library will purchase access to that electronic edition for its readers. And there are various ways that, I think this tends to be referred to as a subscription, but often it is a perpetual access purchase. So the library has it in perpetuity. Um, But there are different models. And then for textbooks, it it might be based on a certain number of readers can access it at the same time, whereas for other books, it might be well, here, you know, here's the book, and you can kind of archive it in your in your your library in a sort of digital form. So, so there are different ways that that can be done. But I think the term subscription, the term subscription is really a carryover from journals where you would subscribe to a journal and you would keep receiving the issues over time and I guess you could subscribe we have ebook collections so you can buy a collection of books on politics or history or whatever and I guess you could choose to subscribe to that year after year but in practice you'd be choosing each year to continue to to purchase that year's books.
0: We were talking a little bit uh, off air before we started taping and one of the the questions that uh, I raised was how academia itself is receiving the idea of open access. Um, My understanding from Twitter and from feedback I get from listeners is that um, scholars are pretty hungry for open access. There's a frustration about paywalls, Um, but there's also um, an old view of uh, what is traditional in academia. and that perhaps that way has more clout. Can you kind of talk to us about those things?
1: Yes, so we know that attitudes to open access vary quite a lot depending on the career stage of a scholar and also depending on where in the world they are. So, for example, in Europe, um, many of the European governments and their national funders have been very strongly supportive of open access, and we do tend to find more support for open access among scholars in Europe. Uh, Whereas in the US, um, because there isn't that sort of federal engagement with sort of open access in quite the same way as there has been in Europe, tend to find a little bit more skepticism, a little bit um, less certainty about whether open access is, is, is a good thing. And we certainly also find that Early career and mid-career scholars tend to be more excited about the possibilities of open access than more senior scholars. I don't quite know why that is. Maybe senior scholars who have very established networks can publish with top presses have somewhat less to benefit from open access than, than earlier career scholars. Um, I think also, so obviously, academic publishing will cover journal publication as well as books. And open access is really established now in journals, but it's less established in books. And and one of the reasons for that is I think it suffered from this association with vanity publishing. So obviously, many publishers have ended up charging this fee in order to substitute for the le- for lost revenues. But because of this, actually, completely separate tradition, you know, where people could choose to pay a press, usually not a publisher, but pay a press to publish a work that hadn't gone through any editorial vetting and self-publish their work. I think there's a fear that if you are paying for publication, does that mean that uh, publishers won't apply the same standards? Which I will say is absolutely not the case. I don't know of any publisher that treats their open access books from an editorial point of view any differently from from their regular books. So Uh, open access books are commissioned by the same editors into the same lists of books. Um, They go through exactly the same peer review process. They have to meet the same standards. Um, But I can see why there might be, you know, why there have been concerns about that with that, you know, if you don't know that, if you haven't been reassured of that by the publisher, perhaps if there hasn't been that many open access books for you to take a look at and realize that they are you know, published by really reputable scholars um, in really exciting new areas. So, all of, so open access has had a bit of an image problem. I think people also worry, oh, well, if it's an electronic innovation, does that mean there won't be a print book? And, and I still want a print book. But again, in almost all circumstances, um, op- publishers of open access books are putting them out in print. So I don't think you're losing anything. You're getting all the things that you would get for your regular book, but it's also much more widely accessible. Um, but yeah, there is, there's a lot to do to make sure people feel comfortable with that. And I think one of the things we were talking about earlier is the fact that even if um, early career scholars are really excited about open access, if they're worried that publishing a book open access might harm their tenure application, then that's not a risk that you, you're going to take. So we really need to change, change hearts and minds throughout the academy, I think, not just the, the up and coming scholars.
0: Is there greater speed with um, open access? Do do the publications um, reach the audience more quickly or would it be the same timeline as traditional publishing?
1: Yes, it's interesting. That is a a really common assumption. And I would say that on the whole, open access is not faster. Again, because we want to make sure that it's going... Going through all the same, you know, we want to make sure it has all the same peer review process. The proposal gets reviewed. The full manuscript um, has a clearance read before it's accepted for publication. That the author has time to make edits um, in light of that feedback, and then of course it's got to go through the full. Uh, Production process. We're going to create a cover for it that's bespoke. So none of those things are going to take any less time for open access books. Um, I can imagine that there might be some some presses out there that are doing open access only and might have slightly different workflows. And they're really, ge- you know, maybe they're doing um, they're really geared towards the electronic workflow um, as the sort of primary one, and they might sort of focus on speed. Um, but I think that would be a choice of individual publishers rather than something that's inherently associated with open access. I want to talk a bit about backlists. Um,
0: it is frustrating as a scholar if you need a book and you find out that it's out of print and it has been out of print for a while, and then you're stuck going online and paying an exorbitant price because it's one of the few extant copies. Does open access uh,
1: help with that issue? I think it potentially could. Certainly, we've seen some publishers who have digitized and made open access, you know, several hundred books from their backlist. Um, sometimes that has There are a lot of university presses that are doing that with charitable funding in order to make important backlist collections of books available open access. So I think it really could be a solution. Obviously, there's. Digitizing books costs money. Everything costs money, um, and so it's not something that can just automatically be done for all books. But I think publishers are starting to look at their backlists and look at where there might be, um, might be, a real value to the community, and and then sort of finding organisations that they can collaborate with to try and unlock those. And indeed, academic libraries have also played a really important role in digitizing their backlist collections so that they can be made widely available. So it's not just publishers.
0: Is it also sort of a preventative measure? If you use an open access publisher now, you know that down the line, your book is not going to become one that's ridiculously hard to get a copy of.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, Publishing has changed a bit in that um, most publishers, even if a book, books rarely go out of print these days because of print on demand. So it used to be that publishers would produce print runs, and then at some point when it didn't make sense, when there weren't enough readers to justify a new print run, then a book might go out of print. But actually now a book never has to go out of print even because if you have the files, you can then um, uh, publish them in print, in print on demand. But I think open access can also provide a solution there and one that's potentially a lot more accessible um, than paying for a print on demand copy. So, and uh, and of course p- could preserve um all of the original features of the book.
0: It sounds like open access has a lot of potential to democratize knowledge. It's one of the goals of this channel is to uh, open up information and democratize knowledge. But I'm, I'm thinking about one of the jobs I had as an adjunct, my students were deployed. They were all over the world and they would send me encrypted emails because they were deployed. So they couldn't tell me much but it boiled down to, I'm, I'm going off on an operation and I can't tell you when I'll be back. They had a very hard time getting book drops. Um, so I'm thinking about students who need to access um, materials but can't rely on the hard copy to arrive to them for whatever reason. I know this is a very specific example, but I think it it resonates for people all over the world who have a variety of reasons why it is difficult for them to access um libraries with print books or to have uh, books sent to them in the mail.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think this is one of, for me, one of the critical reasons that we should be trying to find a way to expand open access. I've been involved in research which shows that open access books not only get significantly more downloads, um, so presumably more readers but also that those downloads are from a much more diverse range of locations we know that their open access books are proportionally downloaded from more readers in low-income countries Uh, there's potentially some evidence that they are downloaded from more places outside of academic sites now that could also involve scholars um, accessing them off campus but um They are obviously, you know, if you're an independent scholar, um, if you're someone who I I know a lot of the open access movement was, in fact, um, a lot of early supporters were, for example, um, patients who wanted to be able to access medical literature, uh, which, you know, they have an obvious interest in that, but they wouldn't be able to usually access an academic journal, but open access enables them. So there are all kinds of communities out there that actually have a real interest in open access, sorry, in, in academic work, um, but can't usually get to it. Um, And of course, in the arts and humanities, um, often that work, that's of interest to the general reader. So yes, I think open access can play a real part in there. I think it's part of an ethical approach to publishing. Um, Because it's reducing those inequities and access to research, it's allowing more people to be part of that conversation. Um, It's easier for the work to be used in educational contexts. so I think lots of benefits and also if you're an academic just from a I guess sort of strictly in terms of your personal benefits then it's much more exposure to your work so you get to do a good thing but it's probably also good for you and your career.
0: I'm also thinking in practical terms for academics we have pounds and pounds and pounds of books and and um Many uh, of our jobs are contingent. You mentioned earlier that when you were in theater, your job might last for two months and then you might have to physically move for the next job. And I was thinking about how you had been a, a literature major and I was thinking about the boxes of books you had to pack up every time you moved. And contingent faculty have that same problem with open access and eBooks, You don't have to pack those. Those are already on your, uh, your
1: devices. Yes, exactly. And they're all completely free of DRM and you could have them in multiple formats. So, you know, you might be able to have, you know, your PDF to store for annotating on your work laptop, but also, you know, an EPUB edition so that you can um, read that on your kind of Kindle or your e-reader of choice. Um, So, yes, I think there's a lot in the convenience. And it's sort of interesting that uh, print still dominates so much um, in academic publishing. And, ebooks have certainly grown and grown over the last decade and a half um, but maybe not as much as you might expect um, and I don't know whether that's because people aren't having as good an experience as they might have with ebooks or because they haven't haven't tried them um, because it seems like as you say they, they could be really beneficial to a lot of people
0: <laughs> one of the things I noticed on your website is there's a section that talks about accessibility and that was one of the things that I was thinking about uh, preparing for this interview was um, for it to truly be open access, it has to work for for different uh, accessibility issues. Uh, Can you talk to us about that?
1: I can talk to you a little bit. I will say this is off the edge of my um, area of expertise but I know it's something that our in-house teams who build our platforms think really carefully about so I was saying earlier today we were having a conversation about how we present our open access books and they were saying well we can't you know so orange is a color that for some reason is really has been long associated with the open access movement and they were saying well we can't do open access things in orange or we shouldn't because actually it doesn't meet our accessibility standards we need to do it in a a more contrast color Um, so that is something that is is built in at every stage of sort of thinking about how the books are presented. I'm probably not going to be able to tell you that much more than that, but I do think it's really important, and I do absolutely agree that you can't just say it's it's open access and um, we've made this PDF free. So that's that's it. That's the end of our work. Um, we definitely do need to make sure that um, from a, a sort of that the eBooks themselves are accessible to people with with sort of different needs. Um, and, and also, I would say, we need. To, this is a sort of slightly different point, but we need to make sure that we're helping people to find those books. I don't think just sticking a book online somewhere is sufficient. There's still a role in helping to make sure that it reaches all those relevant academic communities, whether that's ensuring that a work goes to a conference or that it's promoted to the, the right email lists, um, or all the different ways in which marketers are reaching readers are still really important for open access. Um, it's just you get more benefit from it at the end. Sorry, I've digressed a little bit from your original accessibility point because I, I think I know it's not my area of expertise.
0: No, that's wonderful. And there's a place on the website uh, that talks about how you, you all are open to feedback and you, you want it because you want uh, to increase the accessibility and it's a work in progress to, to get there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. But I, th- I think most things are works in progress. I mean, we're not trying. Uh, publishing publishing has changed a lot, um, especially because of the the um, digital changes over the last decade and a half. Um, and it's something which we're always trying to improve what we do.
0: So this is a question or possibly uh, it's something for your suggestion box. Uh, One thing I've noticed on Twitter, uh, academic Twitter, is students and professors alike talking about the difficulty of the actual reading load and the um, demand for uh, audio versions of the books and articles. Is part of the trend of open access going to be towards um, offering an audio
1: version of the materials, do you think? I think that's a really interesting question. That's certainly been a big development of the last couple of years, as we've there's obviously been a rise with the rise of podcasts, of course, and audio in general. And audio books have also benefited from that. And I think the the pandemic has also seen a huge increase in people who are consuming um, books that way. But certainly, that is coming for. Sorry, we are seeing a take up of audio for academic books as well as for for you know the sort of fiction you might or, or book that you might pick up in a bookshop, um, and one interesting thing about open access is that under certain licenses, under some of those more permissive licenses, it would potentially allow someone else to create podcasts of it. Um, so you could just take the book and say, well, it's under an open access license, so um, I'm going to kind of create a version of this or a podcast or in a sort of audio version of it. Um, and it's also something that authors could. Um, could kind of get involved in themselves so I think it does just give that many more possibilities for the books to be reused in those ways and I should also say in case people are afraid that people might start creating audio versions of their books without their consent that you could also stick a license on it that doesn't permit that so I think it's all about doing what you as an author are comfortable with but also bearing in mind that there could be huge benefits to you know putting that more open license on something and then um, seeing what happens. (laughs)
0: So let's talk about author comfort. What sorts of um, concerns do authors bring to you, and how does uh, Bloomsbury address those so that they feel comfortable using open access?
1: So one thing we hear a lot from humanities scholars is the importance of protecting the precise form of words that they have used. You know, this isn't this isn't a sort of scientific finding where the sort of key point of the book or article can be kind of communicated in numerically or quantitatively. This is something where the whole argument and idea is um, bound together with the way that it has been expressed. And I think there are concerns that things might be... that. Licenses which allow reuse might allow kind of excess, I mean, excessive quotation out of context or for things to be adapted in ways they're not happy with, you know, for there to be translations which they haven't approved, for example. And so one way that we can deal with that, and I haven't gone into all the jargon about different types of creative commons licenses, but there's one which prevents derivative works. And that tends to be one that's quite popular amongst humanities academics and which we use as our standard because that way it prevents unregulated translations. Someone can still come and say, I'd like to do a translation and have that conversation with us and the author, but it stops people doing it without checking in with the author. And that can make people more comfortable about it for example so I think that's that's one thing and I think um, other concerns are often about third-party material obviously that can be particularly important to some um, academic disciplines that are ones that are highly visual for example and we have a really strong visual arts list and so there's a question about can I include third-party material in my open access book and I would say it absolutely is possible to include third-party material. You have to secure permission from whoever holds the rights for it to be included in an open-access book. And there are there are sort of compromises that we can make. So this is getting a little bit technical. But for example, we can include. Um, a third-party image under copyright that's in a work that is otherwise open access as long as the rights holder has given their permission for that to be done and that is a bit of a compromise because it obviously limits quite how that work can be shared but ultimately the rest of the work is still fully open access um, but that rights holders um, their right to the image is still protected people that won't be under an open license. People will still have to come and ask for permission to reuse that. So it's about trying to kind of broker these compromises. Um, Although I think that for highly visual disciplines, it is a a much discussed um, challenge and one where lots of work is going on with, for example, galleries and museums. There's an open glam uh, movement, as it's referred to to try and encourage um, these sorts of organizations to release their content under um, their collections under open licenses as much as they can as well in order to um, to bring that together with open scholarship. Um, so I think things will get better in that respect.
0: This is all very exciting. And I would imagine at this point, listeners are wondering how to submit to you. So how do authors... Um, Get in touch. Uh, do your editors? Is it solely that the editors solicit? Do we meet you at a conference?
1: How How does the pathway work? Yes. Well, I do very much hope that um, that listeners are. interested in submitting and talking to one of our very wonderful editors and in fact if you look on our website you will find a list of our academic editors so you can figure out exactly who the editor is um, that commissions in your particular discipline and their contact details are on there as well so you can reach out directly to the relevant editor by email. I mean I think obviously we do usually attend conferences, and I think we've um, experimented a bit with some online conferences and attempting to commission through those though obviously things have been a bit different over the last year and a half in that respect um, but I would say take a look at the website take a look at take a look at the books that we have published and how yours might fit and um, and see if and get in touch with the editor in the um, appropriate discipline. <clears throat>
0: Sometimes presses uh, have wish lists of uh, particular subject matter they, they want to see more of. Is there anything at Bloomsbury that you're particularly hoping people will
1: submit? I think that's a a difficult question to answer. In that we we have a broad list, so we publish across you know visual arts, literary studies, Shakespeare studies, um, humanities, philosophy, politics. So uh, within all of that, um, it's it's difficult to um, you know, to um, generalize. I would say we have been thinking very hard about. About the diversity of our lists, about how easy it is for scholars who come from from less traditional backgrounds, from backgrounds that are underrepresented um, in academia, to publish with us. We are very actively working to try to to make it easier. Um, not, not easier in terms of dropping our standards, but easier in the sense of not seeming like a sort of, a, you know, a closed off institution that only works in a very traditional basis. So I would say that's, some, that's something we're very keen to talk about and very keen to hear from people who might not come from such sort of obvious traditional um, academic roots, Um providing, obviously we are an academic publisher, so it still needs to be scholarship that sort of fits into an academic conversation. Um, but I'm sure there are people out there who, who kind of know that they fit that brief.
0: <laughs> For people from underrepresented fields of study, often their work is interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary. As they're looking at your lists and trying to figure out who to pitch to, who they might fit, what would your suggestion be that they say in their query letter if they're not specifically in one field, but they their work
1: crosses several fields? I would think just explain that and explain the sort of intersection that you're at and maybe contact if you're not sure where to position it you could contact the two editors who seem to you that are um are are most obviously aligned with what you're doing i mean we do all talk to each other we can have a conversation internally about where that work might best fit but if you don't ask then you'll never find out so i i would say just get in touch and then we can try and have that conversation with you what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners i hope it sparks an an interest in finding out more about open access um, I hope that maybe listeners if they're if they're part of a university might go to their academic library because they tend to there are scholarly communications librarians who tend to be the ones who are the experts in open access and they will know all about how your particular academic institution is engaging with open access and supporting it so they might be able to talk to you about routes to make your work open access. I hope that when people are thinking about where to submit a book perhaps they consider open access options at that publisher Um, you know that that's something that they look for or at least sort of consider as part of their um, you know part of making a decision about where, where your book might might fit. Um, and generally I, I, I just think it has so much to offer. And as I said, from an ethical point of view, um, is such an important development. So, um, and I hope also it will encourage people to explore a bit more. And if they are uncertain or have concerns about kind of quality and open access to sort of go and read online, because there's there's lots out there, both from, from publishers and from libraries and from other organizations that support open access. In fact, I'm going to give a plug at this point for a project I was involved in, which is called the Open Access Books toolkit Um, I don't know if toolkit is a word that sort of immediately um, works for everyone but essentially it's a it's a free online guide which was written by a really great team of people which aims to explain the basics of open access for books how it works how what you as an author might want to look for when you're trying to choose a publisher for your book what the benefits will be demystifying some of the jargon, it's got a glossary and so on. So I think that's also a great place, the OA Books Toolkit, to go if you want to find out more about open access books, Um, as well, of course, as the Bloomsbury website.
0: (laughs) Those sound like great resources, and we will include links to them uh, with this podcast. Thank you so much for being here today, Roz Pine, and telling us about your job as the Global Director of Research and Open Access at Bloomsbury. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.